You are listening to When Veins Meet Like Rivers. Katinik Ukizata Madawan. The podcast expanding on the meaning and behind the scenes creation of the exhibit by the same name, hosted by the plugin ICA. It's a podcast about survival, desire, and kinship. It's about the places where we crash and flow into each other. It's about how and what we resist and submit to. I hope that you enjoy our offerings. Hi, I'm Kite and I am here with Sadie Redwing talking about Lakota design and indigenous sovereignty. Today, we'll be speaking about her research. Recently, I have been thinking about methodologies that are particularly Lakota and have looked towards Red Wing's Lakota Geometric Design Shape Kit and how I can engage with Lakota epistemologies through already established forms in our culture. Since engaging with Red Wing's toolkit, I have thought about it every single day. I use it on all the time. I keep it on hand uh, to think with. I've used it uh, to start making music scores, to make sculptures, and recently you've helped me uh, and my family tell a story uh, from many, many generations ago, a very traumatic story uh, in our family uh, to help tell that through the shapes. And so I think it's been become the most important tool to think with during the course of my PhD. All right, I want to hand it over to you. Um, who are you? Where are you from? Thank you so much for being here. And why did you make this shape kit? Yeah, well, thank you for letting me join in. And I'm um, very just humble, just thankful to hear your um hear your story and how that one piece of a larger project has influenced you in your work. So that's, um, it's really moving for me and I really appreciate sharing that. So my name is Sadie Redwing. I am enrolled citizen of the Spirit Lake Dakota Nation. And I am also a descent of the Cheyenne River Lakota Nation. So for home, me would be Central South Dakota. And I know Sometimes when you hear the words Dakota or Lakota or referencing North Dakota or South Dakota, it gets a little bit confusing, but Central South Dakota is home, specifically along the Missouri River. I um, grew up along the Bad River uh, right in Fort Pierre, South Dakota, so that will always be home for me. And um, I went to Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, got my BFA New Media Arts following I, I, I went to Cape Canaveral, Florida, NASA for an internship and, uh, and that was kind of like my first step into research or per se thinking about technology, thinking about designers or in design thinking and future trends and just kind of knew that wasn't a space for me. So had it in mind that, you know, I would like to be a teacher. So I knew they had to get a master. So was fortunate to be accepted at North Carolina State University and entered into the Master of Graphic Design program and graduated from there in 2016. And when I was 
thinking about a thesis to complete in that master's program, it was really challenging to be narrow and specific for inventing uh, a tool for designers. So in that experience, it was tough to one, just go through the process of research as a Native American student, only Native American student, sometimes only Native American student that um, either a cohort or a classmate in the cohort uh, didn't even know that culture exists or that our, our race exists, or even to working with a mentor or a professor who has never mentored a Native American student before. So coming from a tribal college and wanting to express terminology that, um, you know, that cohort was unfamiliar with was a little bit challenging, but I knew at the end of the day, I needed to leave that program with something that's going to help my demographic. So whether that's a Lakota demographic or Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, whether that is, um, you know, for Native American demographic, or maybe that is from any type of indigenous demographic that is looking to revitalize a language, whether it be verbal language or visual language. So I really had to nail a couple of things down. One is in thinking about what would a, a future world look like for myself. So to give a little bit of context of that, meaning I was raised in South Dakota in South Dakota's rule. And you didn't see the, you didn't notice or see the practice of graphic design the same as the, um, in the realm of agriculture or government or um, it just it just wasn't a, a common practice that was shared or highlighted and as you kind of grow in the education space in the art space you start to really question like communication pieces publication pieces and being in South Dakota you know we have uh, you know, we need communication pieces for our Black Hills powwow, annual powwow. We need communication pieces for our uh, LNI, the Lakota National Invitation Tournament, um, or just any, you know, for, for schools on the reservation that might have, um, you know, teams or, or you know, just, just materials that promote their schools and, you know, whether it be in t-shirts or uniforms or, um, you know, thinking about uh you know basketball roster posters that are hung like on, on the fridge or whatever my i started to see what was being communicated on those materials in my own household and i wouldn't see much of like lakota design i might go to a basketball gymnasium gym located on a reservation and the reserve in in that basketball gym might you know just have beautiful Lakota designs influenced a lot of our beadwork and our and our quill work, but I wouldn't see that on our brochures, or I wouldn't see that on the flyer, and I wouldn't see that in the make in the mailer or a piece of mail that would come in. And in my head, I'm like, who's making these? <laughs> like, it's uh, and then in thinking about during you know pre early 2000s and the 90s, there probably wasn't much option to utilize Photoshop. I don't think it was either taught as much within South Dakota. But to kind of see that if you were in a position to have to create whether you're native or you're non-native and, um, you know, if you're just pulling images off Google or if you're, uh, you know, look, looking at clip art on like Microsoft Word document, there wasn't much material that reflected us as a nation. So it, 
I kind of started there. My frustration came in like, why is our like communication and design pieces so corny? And then also too, like if we are going to start moving in the direction of us as a tribe, demonstrating ourselves as a sovereign nation, everybody has a profession to do that demonstration, even the graphic designer. So if I'm communicating the Lakota nation, I better be communicating Lakota nation. So I kind of start there and that motivation's in my head. And then I kind of saw like, how do we as a Lakota nation, like differentiate ourselves from other tribes? So, you know, if there's a group of 10 natives from different tribes, how would you know without speaking, how would you know just by looking of which tribe they're from? And a lot of it is based on adornment. And I know that, you know, within our own uh, histories and what we have exposed to artifacts, we see a lot of our visual language that is unique to us in our beadwork. And, um, you know, being fortunate to grow up in a community and family members that are beaders, I kind of just started to narrow like my thinking on, well, how, you know, how do, how do they have inspiration on, on, on their beats, on, on their symbols? And knowing that, you know, thinking about how could I use some of their thinking and some of their practices that could help a graphic designer that wants to design for uh, a Lakota demographic. So when I was kind of like studying or even to if I'm, you know, if, if we're just like in a small household and we're at the kitchen table and a relative has all their beads and stuff out so I have like their wax and needles and the works out and I would always see graph paper always see graph paper and there's always color pencils and you do not use that graph paper you don't use the color pencils because those are used for those are specifically for the beaters and and I and you know as I started to you know travel and visit other homes and meet other and have other friends that do beading I noticed that they too used graph paper and color pencils and and I thought you know if I could help beaders like think of an image um, and they wouldn't have to carry this graph paper they wouldn't have to worry about a pencil sharpener or losing like a specific color pencil like what if you just had that all in a digital format so I was kind of really thinking in that terms, which led me into this, well, if I'm going to build a tool for them to help demonstrate a sovereign language, well, how would I do it? So this is where design research kind of came in, in thinking that during that time, and even some of my experience at NASA, the, the tablet was increasing. So meaning the tablet size, so it might have started as like an iPad size, and then you can go into a museum or you can go into a place like NASA where they have tablet as big as tables. So if you want to zoom in or even in the airport, you can all these larger touch, touch screens and then now more and more, you know, computer screens or I guess like laptop screens are touch too. So knowing them that touch piece um, that allows you to, I guess, I know, kind of kind of have that little play aspect. So kind of thinking about um, how utilizing a tool like a tablet screen or a large screen, you know, why is that helpful? Think about why do toddlers, um, you know, learn their shapes and colors and letters through just playing with their finger or pushing stuff around or thinking about uh, even something, even something non-digital like the Etch-a-Sketch. Like why, um, you know, why is that tool 
um, used to even be creative in a P in a why is that tool used to be creative in some type of aspect that allows you to work with lines? And I started doing research on other tools that allowed you to play with shapes and allowed you to um, kind of just use your finger in the way of assembling pieces. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. The goal is to have an app for beaders, beadwork artists <laughs> to have their symbols, meaning that they have to constantly draw them out. They don't have to constantly get a ruler or constantly go on their graph paper and map out each, each of these squares. They'd already have the shapes for them. And all they would have to do is just use their finger and um, start connecting the, you know, kind of brainstorming aspect. Now, that was the, that was the goal. And in that design, uh, in designing that application, that's where the shape kit came out. So, I really had to think about, I have a number of symbols and I want the human experience to do this with them. So this is where this idea of, okay, let me try it physically first. Cause I'm not a coder. Like, I don't know, I can make prototypes, but just in thinking about, is that even gonna be a good way, a good feeling to do? So the first thing that I did was I made, I say skeleton sketches or skeleton bones or just really basic of the shapes entailed in that toolkit, just white ink on uh, white, or sorry, just black ink on white paper. I cut them up into little one by one, two by two uh, squares and I just threw them on a table. And I said, okay, so let's say that. So in thinking about, well, what would my mobile app look like? Would it Would I have a digital, uh, pile of um, shapes and then you use your finger to pull each shape off of that pile or maybe it's just a blank screen and then I and then I had to think of myself okay well where where are these shapes coming from so I tried all these actions in physical form first and uh, with the black and white paper uh, you, you got to get a sense of a feeling, you got a sense to, to play around and you got a sense to kind of see what's what's room for air and what what possibilities are. So then I tried it with transparent paper and thinking about does, does the transparency affect any suggested play or does it affect any way of you, the user connecting those, those pieces together. And then again, I'm in the head of a Lakota beader. I'm not in the headspace of somebody who has never seen Lakota design before. And I think once I got the controls down of how these shapes would connect, then I had to really think about, okay, if somebody who's not familiar with the culture, what are they gonna do with these shapes? So that conversation kind of goes into a little bit more of the protocoling aspect of uh, just making patterns out of shapes that have a great meaning to a sovereign nation, um, which can be furthered on in, into research. But specifically for these, the the shape kit, it was a, a case study and it was a practice of demoing something physical in my um, in my actual hands of connecting these shapes together to make a larger motif or a symbol that might translate a family history, that might translate um, a family design, or that might translate onto a pair of moccasins or leggings or you name it, a purse. Um, but 
the main goal was I want to have, I want this to be convenient for a bead art. I want the tool of the Lakota shape kit to be a convenient aspect so that that artist does not have to rely on redrawing those shapes all the time. <laughs> like it'd just be nice where um, they could either just get on there if they're sitting at a powwow and you know that's maybe where some of the inspiration would come in. They could just get on their phone on um, you know just just con just say some concepts or ideas and uh, yeah, so that was kind of just more of a of a research case study that led to um, the human experience for something digital. So it's just nice. It's just nice to see how that aspect of that um, thesis process is useful as helpful. And you actually connected me to other people who asked to use it as well. And um, and just to see the work that's coming out of your expertise, um, just utilizing just those, those shapes. It's, it's just wonderful. And I have no, no idea to make that that much of an impact for, for somebody to collect and recollect on, um, on stories. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a, I mean, I think one of my passions outside of being an artist and um, working with music and everything um, has now become methodology and, and to hear the process of developing something, especially um, in, in an ethical way and like uh, in a sovereign way and a way that's based in our ways of knowing. I, I think to hear it come out of a, a need for a tool in beadwork is really, really, I think, important um, because when we talk about building new technologies and a lot of the times I hear people trying to reinvent the wheel in order to make something ethical or useful, but it absolutely doesn't have to be like that. Like when we say technology, we mean um, all of the tools um, that we've been using for millennia and and those tools are already good and um, and are have been developed slowly in, in a good way. And like one of, and so when I think about a lot of times I'm talking about computation or artificial intelligence. And um, one of my favorite examples to um, think through is already established frameworks like um, like our sweat lodge. You know, how do we go and collect the willow? Like, what do we have to give in order to take? And and those and, and it's great because I can already look at methodologies that we use every day um, that are already um, full and vibrant. And so it's really nice to hear that um, in other design methodologies because I took a design methodology class um, when I began my PhD and I was very disappointed in the lack of like indigenous method design methodology discussions. So, you know, it's, I, I think that brings me to my, my um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, which is about, you know, what do you see, um, what's the, what's next for you um, as a, um, in your career and everything, and and how do you, what, what kind of needs do you see for the future of your field, um, especially in terms of, before we started recording, we were talking about design canon and design resources, and yeah, it'd be great to hear about that from you. Yeah, um, you, I mean, you made a great point in saying that we have all these methodologies already established. And I think people forget that 
we've been practicing these design structures and processes and frameworks from man for thousands of years and it's like there was room to um to make those processes like on point or let me rephrase that like for us to be practicing ways of designing for thousands of years like we've had that time and that that time to really uh, just be experts in those spaces, as you mentioned, the formulation of a sweat lodge or what are um, some of the areas that I never thought I'd find myself um, in conversations, but I'm growing to is this use of the word reciprocity and how do we demonstrate what that looks like in design thinking and what that looks like as systematic design. And sometimes the challenge is that because our culture is so excluded and we have to take the extra time to paint the picture of what we mean when we, when we throw out the word something like reciprocity um, or when someone says, well, what does it mean when your perspective comes from the land? And I give them um, these examples. So this is kind of an idea on where I'm seeing myself in the future, but then also too, to help clarify some of, I know some of the questions that you get yourself. And one of the um, one of the first things I really remind my audience, so either my students or if I'm whoever my might be uh, communicating with, is that because we had great responsibilities of taking care of the land, we figured out a design process and an operating system that keeps things sustainable, that keeps things rejuvenated, balanced, and we perfected it to the point where um, we kept this planet alive. And one aspect of our duties within the Midwest or within the Great Plains was we had to keep that grass growing. And in order to keep that grass growing, we had to have the buffalo because the buffalo tilled that soil the perfect amount. And I think people, it's really hard for people to envision how, how the buffalo, let's say, let's say we're, we're packing up camp and the buffalo's going up to Canada. We're going to do a loop. We're going to come down to the Carolinas and we're going to work our way back to South Dakota. So thinking, let's just roughly say that's a three month journey. Within uh, that three months, the amount of feet work on that soil, you know, just work that soil just enough um, versus now, you know, you got machinery or, or you know, we were so high demand of like cattle and, and, and soy and corn to the point where we're overworking our soil so much. These machines are stomping on the ground to the point where it's killing, killing our, our soil. And um, could you imagine if they brought in uh, that buffalo migration pattern? to make some of that soil a little bit more life flow or sustainable and not kill it off. Like that would, that's one aspect of us knowing and assembling a system that allowed that prairie to grow. Cause we knew, the, we knew that we needed that grass, that grass, that tall grass helps clean the air just like trees. We knew that's where our fruits were coming from. And we knew that the buffalo played a key part. So once we kind of start knowing the importance of how much that buffalo plays in our duties and our responsibilities and how we cultivated a culture around it, then 
that is an example of an indigenous perspective brought into some of these contemporary conversations. So let's say that me and you get invited to New York City. Let's say New York City um, is really suffering, or is really, let's say the design problem is homelessness in New York City. And they want to start bringing out a more inclusive and diverse designers to help design something a little bit better to help with homeless, homelessness. So if you're bringing two Great Plains designers into the space, what does our ideology look like? Or what does our perspective look like in here? And what people don't understand is that we're bringing this knowledge that I just shared. So if I have knowledge of the Buffalo, I know that Buffalo hide is climate control. I know that it keeps, and I'm just roughly saying this, don't, no one fact check me because I don't know for, for a fact, but inside a buffalo hide, it will stay at a good 72 degrees. So anything cold on the outside or hot on the outside, it's gonna be climate control on the inside. So if you're asking me as a Lakota designer to help with homeless shelters or to help with homeless, I'm saying, look, build some, build some teepees. It's like, you're not needing any metals. All you're gonna need is you know, just the natural resources of a teepee and that can help with a homeless shelter. Now, what would that look like <laughs> um, in a little bit more modern or more urban um, sense? It might not look like a traditional teepee, but at least we know that in needing shelter or needing clothing, buffalo hide works. And I know people are like, well, I don't want to live like in the skin of a buffalo. I was like, well, I do. Like, <laughs> I'd be nice. Like, I like seeing it in my, in my community or I like, you know, um, having a buffalo robe or buffalo blanket. But that's just one example of how our, um, our perspective just really is still in primitive in some sense and that we have science or we have knowledge and science of animals and plant species and weather patterns that could help in some of these, these these design areas. So I really, so to answer your question about the future, like I really want to start help painting the picture so that when future uh, native designers and native researchers are brought into these space where things are quote unquote a little bit more com uh, contemporary, um, it wouldn't be, I don't want people to be uh, making a joke out of our um, out of our knowledge when that knowledge is pure, and we need that um, in order to you know just keep our planet alive. Another area that um, is a little bit outside of that reciprocity conversation, but really communicating and visually communicating what sovereignty is, and I feel like what is so beautiful is more and more tribes are getting their federal recognition and more and more tribes are making an effort to show identity in the media. So not necessarily mainstream media like the news, but I'm gonna say just any type of multimedia, whether that be, um, you know, uh, government, government documents when building greater relationships between the US government and their tribal government or, you know, having better tribes websites <laughs> or just even like you know any aspect that demonstrates a sovereign nation's uh treaties um or any of their policies and they want them to you know show that they are a specific nation we need more and more educated designers and knowing how to design for a nation Traditionally, a graphic design student does not learn how to, how to design for the entire United States, but 
we are in the stage of nation building where in my classroom, I want students confident that they can go work for their tribal governments and it will be able to design for them and use, or if they're, if they're in the point where they're revitalizing visual languages now that they know the protocols and how to work with the language. Cause it's real, we're, we're in the time where the motivation's there, we're having the resources and technology. We just need to make sure that in the means of collaboration with non-Indigenous that we know how to work those conversations. We know how to educate those conversations, be respectful in those conversations to the, so that we can uh, help tribes survive and be sustainable and bring some of their knowledge um, out where other areas of the region in the, in the country may not know. And lastly, <laughs> these last, another area where I hope to see in the future that I, that I like to speak on within my work is, uh, like I mentioned in our conversation before, is I feel like we are still in the era of having to paint the picture, quote unquote, paint the picture. So for example, in my public presentations, I will ask you know, the audience or students or um, whoever workshoppers, if they ever ate at a Native American fast food chain. And just even that little question goes into a rabbit hole of questions, but we do it in a way that we're using an example that everyone is familiar with. So fast food, no, I haven't. And I would say, oh, well, if, if there was, you know, would you name five meals off that? And they're like, hmm, no. <laughs> and then like, well, uh, you know, there's so much opportunity. You want to talk about making safe spaces for Native Americans, whether that's in a mall food court, a campus food court, or just even just within or you know towns that rely on fast food. You know how much education we could provide in uh, Native American culture just by a fast food chain, and how that can branch into well, maybe a university offers a franchise program in their business degree track that allows uh, Native American students to learn how to run a franchise. And you got to bring in a Native American architecture to build the building. And you got to bring in somebody who's knowledgeable on food sovereignty. Then you got to bring in somebody who's going to be able to brand that fast food plus, you know, making ads and the whole work. So the beautiful side of the coin of not having that is there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And that's the where you can start building a team. But the challenge is making sure that the potential team has the resources to be educated in those spaces. So if it's not an American fast food chain, then what if it's a, a Alexa or a, okay Google or Siri that speaks in tribal languages? So again, you're going to need a linguist. You're going to need somebody who knows how to program it. Uh, if if there's going to be a, a Alexa that speaks Navajo, the market or the the packaging and the marketing that's going to go in a Navajo family's doorstep is going to be different than Lakota families. So having to express that, look, the dominant demographic has all these things and it's improving, quote unquote, improving their existence and sustainability. Well, we need those things too. And it's not so much to the point where we're appropriating those technologies. That's when these conversations of what adapting these technologies in for survival um, or just even to revitalization and being knowledgeable on how to communicate that process or communicate that um, interpretation of uh, how to navigate 
out of exploitation or appropriation or um, what actual indigenous perspective looks like in the practice of design, whether that's graphic design or design across the board, but then also thinking about designing thinking, systematic thinking, or just our operation systems. And there's so much rich knowledge that we have in all those areas that um, are gonna be useful in the process of invention, the process of communication, the process of um, just documentation. Like we said, like it's really hard for us to have these resources. And one of the reasons was we're not, we're not a, a race that had the printing press as the Western uh, graphic design canon um, shares in their graphic design history. And we don't have histories of libraries or how there was great documentation of let's say Renaissance philosophers. A lot of that invention was brought over to us within like the last 300 years. So thinking about how much, um, how much that system of citing resources or, document or documented uh, research and preservation of those documentations, we, don't we never had that. And if we did, it was more in a visual form or um, we lost it and we lost it through colonization and colonialism. So I, um, I'm really pushing to I'm really pushing to translate why it's so hard for a Native American student to obtain resources uh, within uh, design research because people forget that um, a lot of stuff was introduced to us just 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And we don't have, we didn't have a need for all of that, uh, all those other tools that was created in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century. So it's really, yeah, like I said, it's really hard to, um, to paint the picture in, in that sense, but it, it's the, the vision's gotta be there or else um, we're just gonna be running around with like chickens, <laughs> their heads cut off. Like, and I think that's what is so important of the work that me and you do is that we're bringing a lot of these visions to life. If not, we're projecting where it needs to go. And that's important. Awesome, thank you so much. Uh, do you wanna mention your new position? Sure thing. So. Currently, I hold the title of a student success coach in at the American Indian College Fund, which is located in Denver, Colorado. And this position is more uh, directed toward advocating for a Native American student experience, whether that's out, whether that's in a tribal college or outside a tribal college, but specifically making sure that students have the resources to keep their retention in higher education spaces. So. I um, definitely adore this work. I always, if you know me, you know of my work, you know I have two passions, is advocating for that Native American student and then also um, building courses for Native American students. If you wanna have a classroom for Native American students, you gotta know how to keep them in the classroom. So I think that's why uh, folks might hear me jump around in, in, in my own expertise, but starting 2022, I will be teaching at OCAD U so Ontario College of Art and Design University in Toronto. So soon I, um, I will be heading up north, but I am very aware of what has been going on in Canada this past few months. And I am 
following my heart and um, and definitely looking to go up and help our relatives up there. So not looking forward to the cold, but just to know that um, there is opportunity to build curriculum, there is opportunity to get back into the classroom, and there is uh, a demographic that is in need of uh, educated uh, Indigenous design researchers, and I'm more than happy to uh, do service in that area. So I'm very excited to be at OCADU. Awesome. That is so exciting for all of us. Um, that's what we really want to see is more of us uh, doing really good work in these uh, big institutions. So uh, I just want to mention that your website is sadiredwing.com, S-A-D-I-E-R-E-D-W-I-N-G.com. If you want to see more of the shape kit and the frameworks, uh, um, your write, writing, uh, it's all there along with your other design work. And I'll, with that, I'll say, Wopila, thank you so much for being here. Beautiful. Thank you. Toksha, Toksha, okay. Hello, I am Corey Stover. Um, my Lakota name is Shigamani Tuska. Um, I'm an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Um, Suzanne Kite is my Punkoff sister, and she's also my niece. Um, I live here on the reservation. I grew up here most of my life. Um, I am a Lakota Studies major. I graduated from Oglala Lakota College with a Bachelor's of Art in Lakota Studies with emphasis in Indian law. I have an Associate of Arts in Lakota Studies and an Associate of Arts in Tribal Law as well from Oglala Lakota College. And I am currently working on a Master of Legal Studies in Indigenous People Law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, I work for Oglala Lakota College as a uh, department chair and program facilitator director of the Vocational Education Program uh, which provides technical training to students here on the reservation in the areas of carpentry, automotive technology, um, office technology, and electrical technology. And I've been at that job for a little over a year, and I've been with the college going on three years total. And uh, what kind of art practice do you do? You do? So I've done a lot of different um more of my art style is more traditional focus but um contemporary in the sense that i do a lot of dancing regalia which is was my main focus and my initial start in um traditional arts i did since i was young um a lot of different regalia for myself and um, of course for my sisters and um, as that developed, my my love for beading and stuff sort of came out of that. Um, but I've kind of danced around with, you know, a sewing machine and beadwork and different things. But my main focus today is doing um, unique beaded pieces. A lot of times I do, uh, you know, one-of-a-kind earrings and medallions with different types of uh, logos that people like, sports teams, um, different brands and I usually do um, 
a little bit smaller pieces, but I do make regalia. I've made my own regalia. I'm a powwow dancer, been a powwow dancer since I was probably about seven years old. Um, and I started out as a fancy dancer. I now dance chicken. Um, I make all my own regalia. My sister was formerly a jingle dress dancer as she was growing up, and I made all of her regalia. And my other little sister is not really into powwow either, but I um, I carry on that tradition for them, and I make them the different regalias to have on hand in the event that they do want to dance. But my main art focus is probably beadwork. Um, I do a little quill work here and there, not really a whole lot. Um, and I'm pretty much what you would call... Uh, I, I guess I do in top two beadwork, I guess you could say. I, I just take a design that comes to me as I go. I find a center point and I just use the beads and the colors and my mind to create whatever I feel like uh, spirit is trying to put using me as their tool to make designs. That's a great segue into talking about this collaboration that we've done together so Corey and I have collaborated a lot um over the years actually past few years a lot of like um interview type stuff discussion stuff kind of working um using our relationship as like the material where we're spend do what we normally do we just talk on the phone we talk about what's important to us talk about family stuff talk about like spirituality talk about our art make art practices and um, a lot of our collaborations come out of that. And so this piece that I made um, with Corey and um, my Aunt Becky Redbow, we, it was done the way that we normally do have conversations um, mm -hmm. where we're sitting at the kitchen table and we're telling stories. And so in this particular piece, we told, um, I listened to the story of Iron Road um, and, and then we talked a little bit about um, relationships with stones. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that like the, the, your quill work practice and beadwork practice are why we chose to use the, um, these symbols, these geometries in the piece. And so maybe just describe right. what it was like to, to use those things and, and what story we told. Yeah, and so those, those geometry symbols and things, um, myself I've never really interpreted them as meanings because growing up here I just always looked at the way other people did their beadwork and their regalia and stuff and just sort of came up with my own version of that before I actually ever understood that that was um, you know a unique form of how we well Lakota people how we did our artwork um, and there's you know a lot of times family designs and colors that are used and stuff and that really wasn't anything that I, I was aware of until I got older and started coming in contact with more and more artists who, you know, are relating back to the traditional realm. So actually doing that project was a really fun project um, to depict the story of our great, great grandmother who ran from the massacre at Wounded Knee and um, made her way to safety and ended up, you know, actually being enrolled in a whole different tribe than where she was from and living on a whole different reservation from where her parents had originally came from and whatnot. And using those symbols and um, different, you know, creating a storyline, it, it's a lot like the Buffalo the winter count on the buffalo robe where they uh, depict each year by a picture but basically we did it in the form of using different symbols 
um, and basically making like a design template um, of this story, which in a sense, you know, now that we've actually, you know, people in our family have actually gone through the process of doing that in some form, that could essentially be a family design uh, to represent our family from our grandmother, whose grandmother came from the massacre. Um, So for me, that was a very interesting project. And it's kind of um, changed, uh, geared my interest towards, you know, as I create my designs and maybe starting to go back and look at my older projects, my more um, original projects where I was just starting out and finding some of the similarities to the designs I use today versus what I was using back then and just maybe, um, you know, learning how to create a more uniform system of how I do my designs and and having a story as to why. Um, Because me, I'm more of a freestyle artist. I never really, I I develop my skill and talent all on my own. I didn't really come from a line of bead workers or a line of quill workers or anything like that. I mean, I can't speak for my ancestors because I'm sure that there were some who did that, but passing directly down from like my grandmother to my mother, to me, my grandmother did do bead work. Um, but she always did necklaces and different things that were more like small projects where I always wanted to venture and do something large, like, like a dress top or a pair of moccasins, you know, just something I, I've done the moccasins. I've never done the dress yet. That's definitely a goal here, you know, in the future, but um, I've, I've always aspired to do the bigger projects. And I think that's what geared my beadwork in a different direction than kind of the rest of my family, because no one was really, um, into doing such big projects so when i did my first set of regalia for my my outfit and it took me a little while because it was my first go around but um it was actually the first time i've ever done anything on that on that scale and over the years i've added to it and actually you know i've become more and more appreciative of it as i look back at it and i look at the stitching and um you know because the lakota we're really um known for doing the lazy stitch and i actually just read a article on this and it changed my perspective on using the term lazy um, (laughs) stitch because it's actually kind of a a really strange way to depict how much work you put into it actually um and and but i analyze it differently i the the article kind of went went along about you know talking about how how we shouldn't devalue our grandmothers and mothers and our work um, speaking more in the women aspect because for some reason um, we've leaned more towards beadwork as being a more feminine attribute where but where i'm from a lot of men do beadwork and they do exceptionally fine beadwork um, probably some of the best beadwork you'll find out there and it comes from the men um, and not all are two spirited, but some are, and that actually you could kind of see that in their artwork and the way they portray their their spirit through their artwork. But um, so I'm, I'm learning how to look at the lazy stitch in a different way. But that's what we're known for is doing the lazy stitch, and I always assumed it was because it would, from a distance, mock the the rows that we would do with quill work prior to beads. Um, being introduced oh, yeah yeah that's true it doesn't so, mimic that shape 
yeah, it, it kind of makes the rows. So if you look at quill work, how the rows go across, then then they incorporate the geometrical designs in the quill work. They've kind of taken that same theme and went with the beadwork um, to make it in the rows as well. Because you won't see a whole lot of tribes do, like uh, Crow, for example, do a lot of really fine, flat, applique beadwork, like, um, I don't know if they call it applique, but I think they call it more like a straight stitch. And then you have a lot of other tribes who do really unique designs and a lot of floral patterns and different stuff. But, you know, Lakota designs you could sort of spot out from anywhere because of our geometrical shapes. We use a lot of the teepee um, or uh, different... Um, sun sunburst patterns and different things like that sort of sort of um, the way we do the star quilt as well so we'll do a lot of the different fades of colors in the star quilt and you'll see that also being in the beadwork uh, with the geometrical shapes and the pointed pointed tops and then a lot of times you'll see it mirroring because uh, when the, when you see the mirroring in beadwork when you see the design connecting and it's the same on both sides. That's a person wanting to represent, you know, so above is so below, you know, um, kind of mirroring the spirit world to our world. Yeah, that's a really good, those are, you hit on like all of the, all of the little like fine details of like, what is women's work? Like what is the, like people's roles and like important roles of two spirit artists and families, like, um, keeping beadwork and like traditions going um, from our grandmothers and like that and then I think one of the things that you said um, at the, when you started talking with, about uh, like revisiting your early work and I think that's one thing that that comes up when we like when I've talked to different um, Lakota beat uh, not even beadworkers just people who like make make their beadwork and they're like oh like it I it I'm a tool, like, and that's like definitely a Lakota spiritual perspective is that we're channels for um, the spirit world and that um, our artwork, and it's and it's in a really normal way. Like, you just make things, and it's and it's it seems subtle and 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 kind of normal that when you make things, they you're just inspired and it just comes out of you. But then, like looking back on it, you can see that there are deeper spiritual meanings to all these geometries to to making doubles of things to making mirrors of things like everything comes back to like the the spiritual aspect of our culture and our art and yeah and it's like maybe if we looked at your beadwork from when you were younger and we reinterpreted it with the Mm -hmm. kind of definitions of the symbols that we're using now maybe we could like see where you were what you were thinking about or dreaming about or spiritually going through at the time and, and I've done, you know, so many different types of, like, um, little projects that never really got off the ground. And I always used to really, like, kind of, like, kick myself about that. Like, well, how come I can't finish this or finish that? And now when I look back, I see all these different uh, projects that were, like, the way I view it now is those were the stepping stones that helped me develop my skill more and more. And I think, you know, one thing that, taunts bead workers is perfection and um when you first start out you don't you you look at it in a way where you if you make a a stitch a certain way 
or or the beads didn't lay a certain way you know you learn how to how to work with them over time where they lay flatter and they fit together better because you're actually taking the time to sort of size the beads out i mean those are skills you ain't gonna know when you first do it 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 develops over time and all these little projects that i kind of you know started where i maybe sat down and i had this idea that I was going to create something. And a lot of times what I would do is just sort of get that design out on like a little strip of, of material and just sort of see how that design was going to look or how those colors fit together or what the, you know, how that design would be shaped if I, you know, cut it in half and turned it this way and, you know, whatnot. And it really makes it, I think it's fun now when I look back, I always thought I should go back and finish those projects. And, you know, I'm thinking now that you mentioned that as I could probably create a piece with all of these, you know, different projects together, um, kind of as like a storyline of, you know, the development of my beadworking over the years, because I started doing beadwork when I was probably, I want to say like 11 years old. I just wanted to dance. I wanted to powwow. Um, I had a single mom and she didn't have all the money in the world to buy me the outfits and things that I wanted. Like other people were fortunate enough to have those links. And it was just me and my mom. We lived in Portland, Oregon at the time. And, um, well, my little brother as well, but, and I just started, like we would go to powwows and I started dancing and I had an old regalia that my grandfather, Mark, Mark Cliff Simica, um, had given me and it was a fancy dance outfit it was was way too big for me i had to like fix it to make it fit and i just got out there and i was dancing and i would get in the contest and i started winning money and i started realizing well hey okay if i dance and i do good and i win money and i was able to you know eventually buy a sewing machine and buy the materials little by little and started creating new regalia and i remember one of the first ones i sewed for myself was uh, a satin dance outfit fancy dance outfit and i had put all this design in there and i put feathers and stuff that i didn't know how to do like a satin stitch and i always you know kicked myself because i looked at everybody else's stuff and they had the nice satin stitch around their embroidery and stuff and so that was a huge learning step for me and over time i now know how to do the satin stitch on the sewing machine and i could create the really beautiful designs and I think back I'm like it used to be so difficult and now you know I could sit down with a few pieces of material come up with a really cool design and you know put it on a shirt or put it on a skirt or put it on somebody's dancer galia for them or whatever and it just flows it it comes so easily but there was a process you know it, it never did happen overnight it was something that over time that grew more and more and I was able to do those things and people took note of that in my community and they would approach me for different things here and there for regalia or for personal beaded items or things like that that's awesome yeah I I think um one of the things that makes me think of is how uh how our artwork changes over time with all our influences and um how you know the way we looked at the Lakota geometries together is like I'm coming from one art world and you're coming from your art world and um, you know bringing them together with with like a family collaboration is like you know I'm so it's so great to look at it and I'm so happy that it's recorded so we can look at it for like the rest of our lives and and show yes. the younger people in the family as they grow up but yeah I'm um, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast and I'll uh, talk yeah, to you definitely. soon. <laughs>
All right. Thank you. Thank you. When Danes Meet Like Rivers is hosted and recorded by Asinayak, Dana Danger, and Kite. Additional guests on this episode include Corey Stover and Sadie Redwing. Our intro and outro song is an original score produced by Kite. Podcast art by Asinayak. This podcast is presented by Plugin Institute of Contemporary Art. You can find a link to the plugin website in our show notes. We are produced by Collective Broadcast Co artist-run collective specializing in tech and live stream solutions. You can find the link to their website in our show notes. This episode is supported by Plugin ICA's generous donors, including the Director's Circle, Canada Council for the Arts, the Manitoba Arts Council, the Winnipeg Arts Council, and MB150. It's the great day to be Indigenous. Bama peace. <laughs>